This is Eric Lau and you are listening to Macon. Eric Lau is a London-based music producer focused on making music that connects people and has a positive impact on society. He looks intentionally for ways that his music and his skills can inspire and encourage other people. To that end, besides producing music, Eric is dedicated to being a music educator. He has worked closely with DJ Jazzy Jeff, most recently working with Jazzy Jeff on his new album, M3. He has also worked with De La Soul, James Poyser, and performed with Robert Glasper, Erica Badu, and Questlove, among others. This is by no means an exhaustive list of people. Eric Lau is a kind of person and artist who may not be a household name, but for the people who know him, they're big fans. When Eric's first album, New Territories, came out in 2008, it received critical acclaim and was widely covered by the media, throwing him into the light. In the 10 years since that album, while Eric has continued to put out his own EPs, singles, and another studio album, he has studiously been avoiding attention out of the desire for people to evaluate him based solely on his music. Recently, he's decided that he wants to be more visible out of a recognition that a larger platform can help him positively impact more people. Elphick, make an audio engineer, and I, Sharice, sat down with Eric while he was in Hong Kong. Who am I? That's a big question. I am a man in Chinese form. I was born in the UK and my parents are from Hong Kong. That kind of sums up who I am. I'm in the music profession. I'm a music producer mainly, mix engineer. Uh, I get booked to DJ, but I would never call myself a DJ. And I'm an educator. So I do a lot of teaching and workshops with young people from all walks of life. So yeah, that kind of sums up what I do, but you know, I'm like a brother, a son, you know, a friend, mentor, all of that as well. I just want people to have an insight into what it is my life is like, I guess, in some way, and from a Chinese perspective as well, being in the West and all that. Well, I wanted to start with asking how you got into it, because you originally started by studying business. Yes, so that's correct. 10 plus years ago, you had a different idea of how life would turn out, yes. and then things panned out differently from your expectations. Uh-huh. Absolutely. After high school here, we call it sixth form college in, in the UK. So before college, college, university. Yeah, so 17, 18 at that time. Unfortunately, you know, I, I, I lost like my, my closest friend at that time to suicide. And it really flipped my world upside down at that point. So when I went to start university in London, I was living in Cambridge before. I moved to London with kind of going through bereavement and of that time, I was like, 
just really open, just open to try things, open to meet people, etc. So London is obviously a great place for that. You know, it's a melting pot of different cultures, all walks of life, and music is strong there. So I chose to do a business marketing degree because I didn't know what to do with my life. So it was a very safe thing to do. But, you know, gradually I met some really good friends and they were kind of into music. One of my friends like wanted to rap and make beats, but he didn't have the patience to make beats. And he bought some software and he's like, oh, I can't use this. Uh, here, you have it. Go try it. And then I tried using it and I had, you know, I had to kind of patience and the kind of programmer's mind to learn software mm. and I got into it and it was like really good fun but that's kind of how I started can mm. I ask about the aftermath of losing your friend mm-hmm. and how you feel your mindset changed before and after that because I feel like mm. it's interesting to me you would say afterwards while grieving you felt open to many things and different people whereas like it shows something about your personality because other people would maybe close themselves off to everything or you know be more guarded as a uh-huh. result of something like that happening you know like my kind of childhood you know being being from Hong Kong Chinese uh, my parents and then living in a town a little town called Ely above Cambridge which is a really prestigious white academic epicenter of the UK I was a minority by far right in that regard and uh, the school I went to I went to a private school a school called King School Ely and the kind of systems in place there are very old boys club mentality Right, and I'm like, what the hell? Well, I understand all this kind of culture. You know, I come from a, I went to a public school before that, so going to that was a big change. And then my parents are working in a fish and chip shop every day from like 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. at night, whereas everyone else at that school were quite affluent from being farmers or just old wealth. So that's that was a shock to the system. I didn't never really fit in there. So when I came to London and after my friend's passing, it was all hitting me, you know, at once. And I didn't want to live life like I did in Cambridge at school. I didn't want that type of life. Never felt comfortable in it. But that's why I was so much more open to explore things that make me happy, really, to be honest. I was like, yo, life is to live. Life is short. You know, in, in honor of my friend, I want to make the most of it. So he was a big inspiration for me to go this route. And along, unfortunately, my cousin and my auntie within a couple of years period of that as well, both committed suicide on top of that. So it made, it made me just like question everything, like everything. So that's, that's why I was like, you know what, I, I got to try different things to, you know, firstly to kind of heal myself and to kind of have a platform to express myself in some way. And music came and I haven't looked back. Were you ever listening to music before mm-hmm. uh, during that yeah, time? Yeah. And Absolutely. During the teenage years, it was more what your friends listened to, right? We didn't have the internet then. 
So it's whatever your friends listen to, you listen to too. And we're all into like, you know, like Nirvana, Pearl Jam and indie stuff, 60s, like Beatles and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then Radiohead and da, da, da. And then that music's all good and I re- really respect it, but didn't realize how depressing some of it was mm-hmm. until I listened to like some, my, my friend put me onto like some old funk or jazz and soul. I was like, oh, this is really uplifting. <laughs> this is really empowering. Right? Uh, I was like, all right. Oh, okay, cool. We all knew like the big hip hop stuff like Dr. Dre or Nas at the time. Yeah. And I thought it was a band that did all that. Right? And then I realized, oh my God, they actually took a bit of that old record and made a whole piece of music out of it. I didn't know that. Yeah. (laughs) Did you just discover that on your own? Uh, Just for friends as well. And then my sister was kind of getting into like all the acid jazz music at that time, like brand new heavies and Jamiroquai and all Mm. that. That kind of very London centric. And then Erica came and my, my sister bought like Baduism. I was like, well, what's this? And she bought it off a whim as well. She was like, it looks really interesting. So she bought it. I listened to it. And I was like, oh, wow, this is crazy. This is really uplifting. It's empowering. There's like messages in there. I was like, okay. And this is before you started making anything yeah, yourself. Yeah. So did you like draw on that when you started, you know, learning the software your friend gave you? A little bit. So that was some of the music education that I had. So my sister and friends, my good friend Julian, he's got really good taste in music. He put me onto like Donald Byrd and Roy and stuff like that Curtis Mayfield when we were like 16 like 15 I'm like that's very good taste yeah, for being very 15 good taste. and 16 <laughs> he's got good taste in music and then when I went to uh, high school I played in a basketball team and there was a crew of us and they were really really into hip hop so they kind of schooled me on hip hop quite a lot and then when I went to college first year I met my friend uh, Hits and he was like one of the best scratch DJs in the, on the campus and he schooled me on like you know the golden era of hip hop which mm. I didn't quite I knew the surface of like Far Side or Gangsta but I didn't know the record the records or who did what and he kind of showed me all of that Mm. and then he kind of taught me how to chop a sample properly or how to juggle a record and all that kind of stuff I was like oh my god it's amazing (laughs) that mix with at the time like Neptunes were like killing it Neptunes were everywhere so they were a big inspiration at that point as well as I was trying to make you know Neptunes sounding beats and Swiss beats and Just Blaze I kind of want to hear those <laughs> <laughs> your old old project when yeah, you first started I've got some somewhere are to are here to to grow So when you started, was it, so I don't make music, so mm. Elf might know this better, but when you start, do you try to imitate something that you like? Yeah. Uh, oh, at the very beginning, I didn't know anything. I was using Fruity, like Hip Hop EJ, then I moved on to Fruity Loose because you could put your own sounds in. And to be honest, I didn't even know, I didn't know what a snare drum or a kick drum or hi-hats or, you know, I don't know the names of those things. Mm. I had no concept of a drum kit. I've never seen one before in my life. So I've, I hear the music and I'm, I see these things and I'm trying to just put it together. So I made loads of weird music in the beginning. Mm. And then after I learned, okay, this is how you use the software, then I kind of started trying to copy different pieces of music to see if I could do it and un- see what was going on. Mm. Uh, and then 
kind of came into myself a little bit more. Growing up, did mm. you ever learn an instrument? N no, not really. Just curious, because a lot yeah. of a lot of Chinese kids, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. have some <laughs> piano, violin, play violin, some piano, some violin. So you're actually starting from scratch. Yeah, nothing really. Music. We had like um, a music class at school, but it was all old classical music mm -hmm. notation, and I was just not interested. When did uh, <laughs> Jay Dilla comes into the picture? After studying all the people I mentioned, yeah, before the the, the Neptunes and Just Justin, all those guys, and then going to like DJ Premier, mm -hmm. Pete Rock, then came Dilla, you know, and I realized he'd done like Far Side Running, which I'd heard years ago and a tribe quest stuff so oh my god this is the same guy okay and now i look more and more into him and i found that i could do like premiere or do just blaze you know well not do them i can imitate those quite Relatively, had the ability to imitate yeah. them okay right mm. but dilla i was like what is he doing there i i don't understand what what is he doing there mm. and is obviously taking still to this day i'm learning from his music that's the genius of him really in terms of timeline, when is this about? Like, you're still in college, graduated? Still in college, still yeah, like the third year. So at that time, were you still thinking of it as this is a really fun hobby, it gives me joy? Yeah, hobby, complete hobby. There's no ambitions to do this as a career. So <laughs> no, what changed? What changed was when I graduated, um, I did an internship at BB Records. Jay Dilla, mm. Welcome to Detroit, Pete Rock, Pete Strumentals, mm. loads of great reissues, DJ Spinner, Mad Lib. At that time, they were doing a lot of great things for a UK-based label because Pete Adakwa, the, the owner, he was he gave people a license just to do whatever they wanted and that was quite rare mm. at that time. So I was kind of doing an internship there just for the summer. And one of my duties was to go to all the record stores and check on the stock. So I'd go around all the record stores and trying to introduce myself to people. No one was very friendly to me at all, to mm. be honest. Uh, and I would kind of ask, you know, can I make music? Can I give you my CD to listen to mm. for some feedback? No one really, apart from one person, right. one person, <laughs> Seth Karma. Seth Karma from, from Deal Real Records. And he was like, yeah, sure, play it. Play it now. And he let me play it on the system in the, in the store. He was like, oh, this is really good. <laughs> like, you know, what do you want to do with it? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just making music. As well, you know, we, we help people, you know, kind of not like manage people in a way or see what opportunities are there are for you. So they kind of gave me support in that. They put, you know, they they showed, they introduced me to loads of people, and I kept on getting good feedback. And I was like, all right, okay, this could be, it could be a thing. So that was kind of one of the turning points. Did you ever tell your parents at that time that you starting to make more music, more involved in the, yep. in the process? And what do they think? You're, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> they were very concerned, very concerned because. I just done a business degree. I've had no musical education. So for them, they thought, oh, is this just a phase? Mm. Understandably, I would question the same thing if my child had never done music at all. Yeah. And then suddenly says, oh, graduate with a business degree. And then you say, oh, I want to do music. It's like, <laughs> I would question that. So it's, I get it. Uh, so yeah, there was a little bit of a, a battle at that point, but we got through it and um, it's brought us a lot closer now, actually. You 
kind of skipped over how or why you applied to the internship. Oh, because I love the music. But mm. it's like post-graduation, or maybe there's something different culturally. I feel like there would have been, for me at least, there would have been um, mm. family or personal pressure to get a full-time job that was, you know, something that was future-proof. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't know why. I think that's, it was only for a summer though. It wasn't that long. I was just a big fan of the music and my friend who I went to, to university with, she was already doing an intern there. So she was mm. like, yo, I can put in a good word for you. And that's how it happened. So I was like, Let me, I want to see how this all works. And then obviously I, you're right. I had to get a, a, a job. Yeah. So I, I got a job in a sneaker store and mm. worked full time there. <laughs> to pay my way yeah yeah <laughs> you must have had good feedback already leading up to that point from someone from friends the people around you in order to have the courage to just like approach strangers and say hey oh, right, do you yeah. want to play this like, did you ever show your friends and yeah yeah so uh and on the university campus um i was making music with some people there just people that i met and there was a there was a music course there so um kind of dabbled a bit with those guys and this is the early days of sharing music independent music uh, or bedroom kind of music online there was a website the original kind of soundcloud and it was called soundclick i don't I know no if you guys too no, young I, see, yeah, I only know so myspace right? is it before myspace before myspace oh, wow right okay and uh, it was a forum and you could have a profile and it was different kind of genres. So I remember doing this remix, a Nas remix, and I put it up there. And I did this Mob Deep remix and I put it up there. And it gradually just started climbing the charts mm. and the most played. And it got to like number one. I was like, all right. <laughs> really like That's it. sick. <laughs> it was like, all right, okay. And I was getting, you know, people leaving comments and stuff. Was it surprising to you? Or did you yeah. have a, I was just gonna say, Very did you have surprising. a feeling that you knew like, oh, I'm actually talented, like I know I'm good? I was just trying to learn. It was all new, all fresh, all exciting, adolescent kind of approach to it. So I wasn't even thinking that, I just wanted to, to do and share. That's all I had. Did you ever use an alias during that time? I thought about that, but I think Eric Lau is an alias, really. Because it's my Chinese name I leave for my family only. What about after you uh, gave your music to, is it Seth? Yeah, Seth yeah. at Del Rio. Yeah, so after that, did he pave your way to make more music, plan it out, like for you, like how like, to uh, do music? They help with like introductions to people and getting my name around. Um, I got my first paid job, production job. Uh, kind of being there and I did an internship there so I was working in the record store as well so I'd meet people and it was like the hub everyone passed through there like Kanye mm. Mose Pharaoh Damn. you know whoever John Legend at that time so I was meeting cool people and getting you know and they would be like yo you need to check out him check out check out my boy Eric da, da, da. so you have opportunities like that that kind of gave me a bit more confidence and kind of it was all very exciting, mm. like hype. It was like pure hype <laughs> all the time. So I got caught up in that whirlwind a bit. You ever got to show your music to the people that you just mentioned? To Mo most, Yasin at that time, Ghostface. Ghostface was like, yo, you know, I want some of the tracks. 
never came through. Mm. <laughs> um, but my first job like came from this artist called like this duo called Hill Street Soul. And it's like a British uh, soul act, like the singer and the producer. And you know they they were re- relatively doing well at the time, and they gave me my first paid job, and they used like three of my productions on the album and I was like oh my god got some money from me <laughs> I was like I can't believe it is there someone from this stage who is also a kind of business mentor to you because with creative work there's kind of two sides right like mm-hmm. there are people who teach you about making the art like your craft and then there are people who teach you about how to actually make money from what you're doing uh, unfortunately no no I didn't have that at that point I didn't have any of the resources that we have now online either like you know Bandcamp you know is incredible or just being able to distribute your own music to Spotify and iTunes so easily I didn't I didn't the infrastructure mm-hmm. wasn't there then so, so how did you figure things out? It was just like every time something happened, you'd think about it on your own. Like, yeah. what do I do in this situation? Uh-huh. I mean, I had a few elders tell me things, but what they were telling me was going over my head. I didn't... Did they ever pressure you to sign a record deal? Uh, no. Um, but generally, that was the way. Mm-hmm. So after a while, my management signed a couple of other artists and they just didn't have as much time for me, right? So I was like, well... I need to, I need to keep get things going. So I went on my own and hustled a bit more. Just worked at my craft a bit more and recorded some demos. And the story is like my friend now Andrew Meza. He's from LA and he was doing this um, kind of college radio station, which turned into a kind of website, kind of music collective called BTS Radio, Beneath the Surface Radio. And he asked me for a guest mix. And this is MySpace days. So he was like, he put on, not put on, but he was one of the first people to play music from Flying Lotus and Hudson Mohawk and mm. Sam I Am, all that stuff, right? Kind of selection before selection, Yeah. right? I did a, did a mix and I saw that he worked for Ubiquity Records. And I was a big fan of theirs at that time. Uh, Michael McFadden and, and um, yeah, he owns it now. Mm. I saw that he worked for them. I was like, oh, I'm a big fan. Like, could I give my demos to to, to pass on? And he was like, I didn't ask you because I thought you were already signed. I'm like, no. <laughs> so he passed on my demos to Andrew Jervis, who mm. was the main A&R at the time. And he really, really enjoyed the demos. A few weeks later, they gave me a deal. That was it. And that was all before I turned 25. And I set a deadline for myself for 25 to actually get a deal. So that was a big turning point for me. During those demo phase, like, did you already have artists that like sings on your tracks? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so, so you're like Rahel, Rahel yeah. and Tawia, Toast and Serena. We cut like five, six songs and mm-hmm. that was what Becomes I passed on. New territories. Yeah, and that mm-hmm. became that. So you were you were ready, you had a thing and you were just waiting for someone or looking for someone to take it up. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Well, that was just, you know, I was just doing it regardless. I wasn't thinking about industry or anything. I was just making music and this opportunity came and 
you know, in hindsight, looking back, I was nowhere near technically ready. But I think what was what Andrew Jervis and those guys liked was the vibe and the sentiment of the music, which is the most important thing for me. Is a dual meaning, new territories in terms of Hong Kong, where I'm from, and new territories for the group of people who are doing this type of music. Yeah. Ubiquity mm. still has press releases from new territories online that oh, you can right, find. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a music magazine that reviewed mm. your album and compared you to Jay Dilla. Uh, Did you read the reviews? Yeah. I think at that stage is way... I mean, no one really can be compared to Dilla, really, to be honest. Uh, I was just wondering how, if that had an effect on you. Releasing an album, getting all this critical acclaim, suddenly people are talking about you mm. when they might not have been before. Yeah, it definitely contributes to your ego, 100%. Thank God I had met some really good elders to keep me in check because that hype machine can swallow up the best of us, to be honest. I've seen it. I've seen myself get caught up in caring about what other people think when it doesn't really matter. What, what matters is what the music does for society, really. You know, and thankfully I've learned that. But it's nice to get praise and it gives you a bit of confidence. But yeah, that's about it, really. You can't really take more than that. But um, is this like you, 2018, looking back and saying that? <laughs> <laughs> no, because like with Jay Dilla especially, I don't think anyone has touched on that level because he's the he's the innovator of modern production so to speak I think uh, the epitome of modern music production is Jay Diller my aim was actually just to make a, a record that was like Slum Village but with singers mm. that was my aim um, so for someone to kind of make the comparison it, make, it makes sense mm. like in that way and like I, I execution wise I, I'm, I was nowhere close there I was just like a baby I didn't know what was going on <laughs> it's interesting because you said that earlier as well. You said like technically you were nowhere near ready no. for producing that. It's interesting to hear you be able to see that growth so clearly. But is that how you felt in the moment yeah. as well? Yeah, okay. because I, I knew what I wanted it to sound like in my head, but execution wise, it wasn't coming through. Like mm. I saw it and I just did the best that I could at that time. And I, I met my deadline. I'm the type of personality. If there's a deadline, I meet it. Right? Even if so, it's self-imposed. Yeah. Or they they put they put the deadline there. Mm. So I, I didn't want to let them down. I want to be professional. And that's how you grow. You create. You trap it. You share it. You learn from it. And then the next one, you refine. Yeah. You get better mm. and better. Yeah. And the only reason I would ask this question is because you've already suggested that at that point you might not have been technically fully ready. Mm -hmm. So looking back at the different points that kind of you know gave you a bump you know, mm -hmm. in your career. How much of it do you think is a bit of timing, a bit of luck, a bit of someone else like lending a hand when you didn't, mm -hmm. when you weren't even deserving of it? I think it's a combination of all of that. Again, I go back to the sentiment and the vibe of the music is key. Because mm -hmm. if that resonates with people, it doesn't matter about the sound quality of it or classical technique of something. Mm. If you feel it, you feel it. You know, there's some Dilla stuff which is like crusty cassette. You could, you know, really bad quality, but the vibe is so good. You just want to listen to it over and over again. And that's the beauty of, of that. The essence of a piece of music, you know, it can transcend the medium, so to speak. Yeah, you right? said you think the most important thing is that 
music shapes society. Uh, the, how, how the music can have a positive impact on society. Do you see your music doing that? I would like to say that it has affected some people in a positive way and that's my aim is it's, mm. it's to impact people in that way. Yeah. Is there some example you can think of or maybe people that you interacted with? I've had people tell me that they want to play you know, one of my songs at the funeral. I've had people get married to my music. I've had people tell me they've conceived their first child <laughs> to my music. That's a strange thing to tell someone. Yeah, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. That's an interesting feeling must be. It's yeah. It's, like, it's overwhelming. It's like, oh, right. You know, as the journey goes on, you realize that you are not your music. You are not your art. Mm. I, that's how I see it. You know, it comes through us. You collaborate with people. And once it's shared, it's everyone's. So it's not really mine. It comes from somewhere else and it goes somewhere else. Is there any significant events happening between those small projects up until one of many in your music life to, or just what inspires you to kind of lead up to one of many? Just growth, maturity, spiritual growth. You know, Quadrivium was a, actually before that really, just to give you a timeline. Mm. So when you asked about the hype thing, you know, interviews and quotes being compared to so-and-so another one key thing that kept me humble right actually two key things firstly my mother <laughs> kept me humble she doesn't care if I'm working with so-and-so or being compared so it doesn't matter it's mm-hmm. like are you all right firstly right secondly is I was doing a lot of teaching teaching young people kids from all different backgrounds so like from young offenders to autistic young people to young mothers groups every like just normal kids at normal school after school programs anything you can think of and they don't care who you are can you gain their respect in three hours and make a piece of teach them how to make a piece of music you learn a lot about yourself and how to communicate with other people and build a rapport Mm. and that humbled me for the music industry completely so that's part of the journey and that's a very significant thing mm-hmm. and secondly meeting elders in the in the music game I actually met Digo if you don't know about Digo one of the most pioneering producers in modern times you know was was half main part of Four Hero and the West London sound and now 2000 Black I met him when Dilla passed away so we both played that the, the tribute at the first one in London and I gave him a CD like I do because I'm a fan of his and like weeks later I got a text from him saying like you know who the fuck is Eric Lau <laughs> typical Digo response and then after that we kind of got to know each other a bit more and he's been in the game over 25 years so he's kind of taught me how to carry myself and his cavalier approach has kind of taught me not to care about what anyone thinks as well and just how to conduct yourself as a minority in the west as well you you know how to take pride in your culture and how to stand up strong and tall so he was a big factor within my growth and also his good friend Mr. Mensa who to me is one of the greatest people on this planet I just I sometimes we think does this person does he is he real because mm. he's so, so loving and generous 
always consistently righteous in everything that he does. He never says a negative word about anything. He's like the internet. You can ask him anything, he, so, he knows it. He knows. Right. I don't know how. What does he do, Mr. Mansour? I don't know. <laughs> I've known him for like 10 years. I don't know what he does. But he, he's a musician, right. but I don't know what he does. He's one of the greatest musicians as well. So he's very low key. He guided me on the kind of spiritual path of who I am, why I'm here, why, you know, how to conduct yourself, how mm. to handle certain environments. And he's just helped me in so many levels, musically, as a mentor, everything. So he is, he's a key, key critical person in my life. Oh, so much to him. And Kaidi, Kaidi Tatham. Mm. He's like my big little brother. He's a genius. I don't say that lightly. There's not many people I call geniuses musically, and he is. To me, he is music on tap. He can fit into any situation and make it better. And I've just learned musically from him so much. He's always challenges me, always teaches me something new. And, you know, it's just uh, such a pleasure to, to work with him every time. It, like working with these type of artists, often like they are m musically like very fluent. They're coming from a very solid foundation of music as a language, right? Yeah. And is there any way that you felt like you need to keep up with that? Or like, is there anything that you, you need to do to kind of like, you know, match with that level? Mm -hmm. And how do you kind of kind of close that gap? Uh, it's learning how to, your strengths and weaknesses, mm. really. So Digo summed it for me as a producer. If you know someone that's better than you that can do that, then ask him to do, do ask them to do it for you. Mm. Why do you have to play everything? Mm. You don't have to, right? So yeah. if you can direct and get whatever it is you can out of that person for the good of the music, then if you let your ego go, then you can you can achieve great things. I never felt uncomfortable with those guys. I was just in awe of them, seeing them play. But once they invited me into their sessions, you know, they would do some crazy, you know, playing crazy progressions and timings. And they'd be like, yo, Eric's here. Yo, it's your turn. And it wasn't like a, a pressure thing. It was just like, do you, whatever you can do. This is coincidental, but I was reading a book today that had almost the exact quote. Mm. It's a writer writing a book um, and he gets the advice. If you want to learn something, find the person who does that thing the best. Yeah and ask them to teach you. So exactly. it's a little bit different. Yeah, exactly But, but both things work, yeah. Mm. They are the best in Europe, 100%, and some of the best in the world. Like, so I couldn't be in a better environment, to be honest. Um, so that was a big part. You know, they would challenge me to do something in a different time signature, right? I've never done that before. Or play play more keyboard. I wasn't, I'm not a keys player, but I'll, I'll play some stuff. And they'll be like, oh yeah, just, just piece it together slowly. It's cool. Just do mm. your thing. And then the tracks that we did, Digo ch chose to use them. And I was like, wow, like he put that faith in me. He doesn't, he never, he rarely does that for people. Like, you know, welcomes people in like that. So I felt very honored to be there for sure. You kind of talked a little bit about spirituality and ways to conduct yourself. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking, is there some some kind of like guiding principle that you have when approaching relationships and music projects? Something that lets you know this is the right path to be on, but this is not the thing for me right now. Mm, that's a good question. One of the things Mr. Mensa taught me, I thought my sensitivity growing up was a weakness, was soft, right? He taught me that that's my greatest gift. Trust that. So when you apply that to music or in terms of decision-making in music, 
or anything creative or just energies of people, if you feel like if it's not quite right, then it's not quite right. Trust that. Trust that 100%. And I, and I, I really do now. And it's only led me to goodness. So that was one of the greatest lessons I learned. You know, I'm hypersensitive to everything. But once you develop and train yourself, you know how to operate. And when you can apply that to a musical environment, then or with relationships, it only helps. It really helps. Mm. Uh-huh. So what's the reception of uh, the second album? So you talk about your journey to how to lead up, like, you know, what changes in the second album? I'm trying to remember. Um, so that was, what year was that? That's five that's years ago, mm. 2013, five years already. Um, the sentiment of one of many, after kind of just doing a lot more research and just becoming a bit more aware and meeting more musicians on this kind of journey and artists in general, I'm just one of many people trying to, as I said, lift the vibration of this planet in some way, right? Through art or through our interactions with others in general. I was, I'm just one of many people. And then many of us living things in the universe, we make one. So that's the concept of the record, right? Mm -hmm. I wrote a little kind of mission statement of that. And then I sent it to the, everyone involved. Mm -hmm. So they kind of got that. And then we created. And again, I had a deadline. That's a tight one. And we had many challenges through that, but we, we managed to reach it and um, put it out there and the feedback was great. Like it was released on Kilowatt, which is just one person, Simon Daly. And he believed in me and I, I have, you know, a lot of grat gratitude towards his support because I didn't have any mm. other outlet. And he supported me, he funded the project, believed in me. It's just one person, you know, it's not like a big label mm. or anything. And we put it out there and the kind of press that we got was on par with, you know, people like Robert, Robert Glasper, when he dropped um, Black Radio. So all the blogs, all the websites, it was because we released them similar time, it's all us everywhere, right? So mm. that's without money, like, mm. put into it. That's Blue Note. And this is just one person. Yeah. So at the time, I was very proud. I Did you say. timed it? Like, do you ever even know like Robert no, was no, no, doing no. that? Or, no. Okay. So that shows me if you put, you know, good quality out there and you get it to the right people to understand that, they'll support you. And that's what happened. It's kind of like, I've, I've been always like looking up to your path mm. and just like kind of checking the boxes, see like seeing how you, you, you became was like very align with like my calling I felt mm -hmm. like so it's a, it's a blessing to know that there's a Hong Kong Chinese producer kind of making that world mm. kind of inspired like the next generation of people that's trying to do music yeah that's to me that's that's the aim I'm not saying that everyone like doing music is for everyone or doing art or anything uh, it's not a case of that it's more to see a Chinese face in a different um, context opens up the possibility for others to do something that they might want to do that they think that is not stereotypical, right? And that's very important. You know, the, the older I've gone, the more I realize that's really important. And for you to kind of 
step forward in that a bit with a bit more confidence yeah. is exactly why I'm trying to be more visible mm. and to be able to use these platforms like this to just like, truly express myself. Yeah. Because there aren't that many Chinese Hong Kong people, you know, doing what, what yeah. we do, right? So Previously, uh, do you think you were trying to be less visible? Absolutely. I was trying not to be visible at all. Mm. I, I didn't even want people to know what I look like, to be honest. Why is that? It was an ego thing. Uh, I wanted people to take me on my music mm. solely. Um, which is still the case in some regards because if you're not feeling my music, that's that's fine. But I don't want you to just, if you're Chinese and you see me that I'm Chinese, oh yeah, he's really good. Nah, like if you're not feeling it, you're not feeling it. Or if you're feeling it, you're feeling it. It, it shouldn't matter what I look like, right? Or the, or the reverse, right? Oh, he's Chinese. I'm not even listening to this, I think, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't want that. Yeah. You didn't want people to conflate the kind of music you create and who you are yeah. as a person. Mm -hmm. But now... I understand how important it is to be visible, mm. as I said, because there's very few people, Chinese people in, in this in this realm. And I realize I have an opportunity to speak so and use this platform. And, and when I hear stories like from yourself and mm. others, I would like to do that more and more. Mm. I feel like recent years, there's definitely like a big movement in Asian artists being highlighted. And I don't know if you know anything about 88 Rising and all those platforms where it yeah. kind of like highlights Asian artists. What do you think of those? Um, right. Controversial. I think there's a fine line when it comes to hip hop culture and black culture where you're inspired by what they do. You're inspired by the art and you embrace it and you you can express yourself within the art in your way and find your voice in that. So I'm a Chinese man. I'm not trying to be anything else. And a lot of modern international hip hop music sometimes, whether it's from China or wherever in the world, I feel the way they present themselves, what they talk about, everything, I don't believe it sometimes. I'm like, you don't talk to your mother like that. <laughs> mm. Are you really going <laughs> to sit around the dinner table and be like that? Right. So what is that culture? That's like a warped perception of what black culture is. And they're trying to present it that way. And then to kind of profit of it. I don't know, man. I'm not really sure about that. Just being real. Real talk. The way you have presented your decision in terms of mm -hmm. being more visible, my understanding is that you have consciously made this decision because of representation, mm -hmm. because of wanting to inspire other young people who might look up to you and not because you're looking for individual fame or the glorification of your mm -hmm. name. Like, this is my understanding. Right. But 88 Rising, I don't believe that they have this perception of wanting to become more visible in order to give young Chinese people something to look up to. It's all for the hype. I feel like everything they do, it's like a formula from America that's yeah. like paved the way and mm -hmm. they know it worked. So they're specifically finding artists that can mold them and shape them into that sort of you know image. Yeah, and there's a warped perception. Mm -hmm. It's not like they're getting... The, the black American producers and writers and, and engineers to go to China and to produce Chinese artists, that'll be a different story, mm. right? It's them kind of assimilating the culture really into their into what they perceive it as and to, to kind of gain from that. Um, I can't make like a full judgment on this because I don't really know 
that music. So I'm happy there's a platform like 88 Rising. I really like the name, actually. It's really cool. I like the name. I, I don't know, but what I've seen very briefly, I'm like, it hasn't encouraged me to look more. I'm afraid as a Chinese man. I'm like, oh God, like that. Rather than, oh, what's this? Oh, what's this? Oh, cool, this is cool. I, I'm, I'm not saying that. I want to say that. Mm. <laughs> On the other hand, I do sometimes feel torn because I feel like there should be room for Chinese hip hop musicians to be bad at music. That's fine. I do think, oh, there should be room for good and bad Chinese artists and mm -hmm. that we don't have to have the people who are globally recognized be amazing. But yet that is the other part of me feels that way. Like mm -hmm. I, yeah, want, yeah, I, feel you. I want the most visible mm, yes. Asian artists to be the best because uh -huh. there aren't that many of them. Yep. And because everyone is looking at these certain people. I, I feel you, I, that's what I'm saying. When I hear of these things, I'm like happy that yeah. people are experiencing expressing themselves mm -hmm. and making music and there's communities and movements and people are, are really active. That's great, it's important. And that adolescence is fine sometimes, but if it's the only representation, then mm. that's the detriment to both sides, to Chinese culture and to black American music culture, because mm. that's where it's from. It's detrimental to both of them, if mm. it's only that. Mm. So there needs to be more. Um, to ask you again about you personally, you told mm -hmm. us earlier this week that you're planning to spend more time in Asia. Absolutely. Do you want to talk a little bit about that decision? Um, I just feel like I'm at a stage in my life where quality of life means a lot to me. Um, I live in the village in Saigong and it's very peaceful. All my family have been there for like hundreds of years. I kind of feel uh, way more connected there a lot of nature around, family around. So main thing is that. Secondly, is because I feel like I would like to take back what I've learned from, from the West and pass on knowledge mm -hmm. here and to learn from here as well. Mm -hmm. So I want to have more exchanges. I like to do work in universities or more workshops in kind of music schools and get to know the musicians and artists from China, especially yeah. Hong Kong and the rest of Asia. Yeah. And, you know, I like to contribute and help in, in some in some way possible, you know, whatever mm. way that is. Is there anything that you feel like isn't possible here that is possible for you in the UK? Like musicians and artists, because of the history of music in, in London and America, it's been going on for hundreds of years in, in this realm of music, black music, and that's my field. So I've met communities that really understand and have open-mindedness about music in, in China, incredible people. But in terms of that, I, I'm looking for that here. Mm. So I don't think I'll ever feel like I've left anything behind because the world is so small now, you know? That's true. So, and I'm used to flying everywhere to work mm. with people. Um, so that's not going to be a problem. Coming to Asia, do you already see any changes that you can do that kind of incorporate the Chinese elements into your music? Or like there's some sort of direction that's like completely different than what you're doing in the States or the UK? I feel like the energy of my music, the emphasis and the intention behind my music hasn't changed since I've started. So that framework, that frame, you can put anything in that frame. So whether it's Chinese or Brazilian or African or whatever, it can work. Yeah, it's definitely possible. You know, I, I, I've got so much to learn about 
Chinese culture and Chinese music culture is something that I would like to explore and to hopefully frame and share in a different way. Ask a little bit more about the Jesse Jeff retreat. What do you gain out of it? And like the story just behind the, the that album, Chasing Goosebumps. James Poiser, legendary producer, keyboard player, who actually produced Erica Badu, Baduism, which oh. is one of the main albums that kind of, you know, changed things for me. Yeah. And when I was really young, we had dialogue from New Territories because they sent, Ubiquiti sent my album to him and he gave me good feedback. Because I said, oh, you know, you inspired me. You and Dilla, especially. He played my music to Jazzy Jeff. Jazzy Jeff hits me up on Twitter immediately. Mm. Like, yo, love your music, man. I'm in London in three weeks, you know, let's link. And then we met up. He was with his wife, Danette, and the kids, the twins. And we just talked about life, music, basketball until like 3, 4 a.m. And then he invited me to his for these playlist sessions. Uh, so the playlist, the playlist retreat is something that Jeff does every August where he handpicks and invites around 100 DJs, producers, artists, you know, there's like seminars, talks, and everyone kind of get to know each other and share, you know, their experiences, bad and good. And he just wants to build more of a community so that we can bypass, you know, the old uh, models of industry. Mm. And he's doing that. He really is. The Playlist Sessions is a is another wing of that where uh, he invites music makers and we come together and we just make music. So Chasing Goosebumps, mm -hmm. he had the idea to do an album in seven days and to live stream it and release it on the seventh day. And it was one of those situations, as you said, you're in a room full of like the greatest musicians on the planet. How can you contribute? So I kind of fell, fell into the engineer traditional music producer role mm. where I wasn't necessarily playing as a keyboard or stuff. I was maybe had a starting point or maybe I'll keep the vibe going or just record everything properly and get the sound right. Yeah. So that I've gradually found my role and been one of the greatest musical experiences I've ever had. And I've, yeah. I'm just learning from them all the time. That's the kind of Jeff relationship. And he's took me in. Yeah, he's just a very generous generous, wise, loving man. One of the greatest people I know as well. Much respect to Jeff, much love. Jeff has had a few little kind of conversations with us about trying to change the model of how, how it all works. And I mean, I can't reveal anything yet, but it's coming. And it could potentially mean that we come together to make music more often and to have more flows of albums coming out like back in the day where you had like Motown or whoever have a core group of people continuously working that's the aim really mm. but how do we do that where everyone is treated fairly and is you know is gonna how, how do I put it in terms of the business it's sustainable it's, yeah sustainable yeah. and fair for everyone mm -hmm. you know if we can bring it to the present what can you talk about that you are working on right now? Mm. So uh, I'm just mixing Masego's album, young artist from Virginia, really, 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 really talented. Um, so his album coming out in the summer. I mixed another artist called Emma V's album just now. She's incredible vocalist, mm. producer, arranger from London. Uh, I'm doing 
second volume of examples. Mm. So examples is an instrumental project. So volume two of that. And then after that, I'm doing my full length album, my third full length album. And that's coming out maybe next year. That's what's happening. And Jeff's album just came out. So, you know, I recorded all of that and kind of did the production on that with Jeff. So that just came out, M3 which is the third installment of the Magnificent series. And Kylie's album helped mix Kylie Tatum's album. That's coming out in a couple of months. So there's a lot. Amazing. Well, look forward to uh, hear all of them. Yeah, uh, when it I comes hope you guys out. enjoy it. If we can forecast ahead, like not even projects that you know are currently existing, but looking to the next five, seven years, mm -hmm. what do you hope to accomplish? Wow. I want to produce some babies. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to do. We're going to end right there. That's <laughs> um, I want a family, like for yeah. real. That's You've been nice. saying that for a minute. Yeah, I want to have yeah. a family, main thing. I mean, I'm saying at my label, right? Mm. So my next album is going to be on my own label. I want to mix more records for people. I want to do more stuff with the playlist and make great albums with them. I don't know. That that's it, really. I haven't. I kind of go with the flow, mm. really, to be honest. But having my own label is what will allow me to release music more quickly. I want to be able to. You know, I haven't got enough music out there, to be honest. Are you so, going to bring other people onto your label? Yeah, definitely. I've got a light-hearted question. What is something not music-related, not career-related that you think doesn't get enough notice? It could be food, it could be a place in Hong Kong, something totally underrated. I think Chinese humor, I think is something that I've really missed. In my uh, community in, in London and in America, I don't have many Chinese friends within that. You know, I'm mm. the only person. So when I come back and speak Cantonese and talk to people and hearing the Cantonese humor, I haven't had that feeling for a long time and it's such a different type of humor. And I think it's very underrated. Like one of my earliest memories from like Hong Kong film cinema mm. is Bunga Batlong, right? And That's I watched old, yeah. that a couple of years mm -hmm. ago and it's still amazing to this day. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's so probably relevant. one of the funniest films I've ever watched. Uh, so I think Chinese humor is very underrated. I know you are someone who's been teaching for a long time and uh -huh. working with young people and excited about artists who are just finding themselves. Who's someone you're excited about? I mean, Masego, like he's super talented. He hasn't even started yet. People don't realize the depth of his talent in terms of musicality. He plays everything. People know him for playing sax, right? And singing. But his keyboard playing, I was telling him today on the phone, there was a point where we were at Jeff's and he was just playing us little kind of things that he's been working on. And there was a piano piece where he probably recorded with his iPhone. It sounded like a 1940s, 50s jazz player. And me and Kylie were like, is that you? <laughs> and Kylie was like, no, that's not you. That's not you. And Masego was like, yeah, it's me. It's like, <laughs> Kylie didn't believe him. And so Masego, like he's even more talented than the music that he produces now. Another young artist, Amir, Jazzy Jeff's son. He's 18 years old and he's already done like three projects and he, he knows how to engineer his own vocals. And he's just super intelligent, super talented. Gwen Bunn, she went to Berkeley, she can play jazz level piano, but she'll produce Colored Greens for Schoolboy Q. And then she'll do something with Fonte and them, and then she'll work with Ninth, and then she'll work with us. She's just incredible in that. There's so, there's so many. It's really healthy right now, music, the young generation, I gotta say. There's loads of great young musicians in London as well. There's too many right now to name. 
This has been great to hear. It's good to hear you get excited about people. Oh, there's so much. I'm just a fan of music. hear more stories like this one and more from the world of creative culture and beyond check them out at makin.com that's m-a-e-k-a-n.com or search for us on your favorite podcast app 